did I get the job? Absolutely not. Why not? Because you're a baby boomer and I'm a millennial. Most Gen Xers are in school during the crash. So at first they think like, so what? I am a Gen Xer. But I came to find out that actually the term Generation X, it has no meaning. How is eating meat racist? I'll gladly tell you. Looks like we've got an oppressor on our hands. Millennials in Generation Z have the Peter Pan syndrome. They don't ever want to grow up. Maybe they belong to school, you didn't do anything. While there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else. And yet you're stealing their future in front of their very eyes. You're going to mature and you're going to realize nothing's free, that things aren't equal, and that your utopian society you created in your mind in your youth simply is not sustainable. Okay, Boomer, listen up. Generational conflict is back. Boomers have stolen millennials' future. They've used up scarce resources while voting for austerity. For their part, millennials are self-absorbed avocado scoffers who rather complain than work and save. Where once the young rebels of the 1960s stuck it to the man, and by extension their parents' generation, today it's the turn of the young to challenge that very same 60s generation, now grown old, retired, and complacent. It's they who mortgaged our future, didn't they? This is the growing narrative of generationalism, the belief that all members of a given generation possess characteristics specific to that generation, which make it inferior or superior to another. Our turbulent times at the end of the end of history are generating new cleavages and conflicts, and the generation war is one of the most prominent across the West. Welcome to OK Boonger, The Problem of Generations, a special five-part series by Alfe Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Last time, in part four, we examined Generation X, the generation of the end of history and the rise of neoliberalism, of the Iranian Revolution and its aftermath, and of the fall of the Soviet Union. Ultimately, it was a generation that, unlike the boomers that preceded it, did not have a strong generational consciousness. They lived in the boomer's shadow. In this final part, we turn to a generation that already rivals the boomers in the amount of ink spilt about it, millennials. And we conclude by looking at how the pandemic may shape the newest generation, Gen Z. Millennials grew up after the end of history, with the fall of the Soviet Union, the end of communism, and all major questions of politics and society seemingly settled. It would follow that millennials would see themselves as a generation without history, or even beyond history floating above and otherwise unconstrained by the processes and narratives that gave previous generations a sense of their place in the wider sweep of history. In this political void, are millennials able to understand themselves as a generation at all? If generational consciousness is driven by a sense of conflict with and distinction from the old, what are millennials against? Or does this generation simply take on the labels and descriptions that others put on it, a hyper-mediatized generation constructed by media narrative? In this historyless era though, there were still formative events that millennials experienced together as they came of age. 9-11, the war on terror, and the invasion of Iraq that followed. With the global financial crisis of 2008, and its long-lasting consequences, perhaps the definitive event marking this generation, and indeed, perhaps splitting it in two. Our systematic effort to dismantle terrorist organizations must continue. But this war, like all wars, must end. That's what history advises. We're all familiar by now with the general caricatured picture of millennials and its common themes. Millennials are obsessed with social media, addicted to Instagram and Twitter, but leaving Facebook for the boomers and TikTok for the teens. Not really. Exactly in what area of technology mm -hmm. are you proficient? <laughs> Snapchat, Pinterest, Instagram, Vine, Twitter. You know, the big ones. I'm surprised you didn't say Facebook. 
Millennials are economically feckless, splurging on avocados and expensive coffees at the expense of saving for mortgages. Mostly everything I'm seeing here is coffee and food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Outside of my bills, where most of my money goes, is food, drinks, and Ubers going out. Makes me feel like I'm throwing money away, but at the same time, I'm having fun, so... Millennials are both passionate about social justice and contemptuous of their boomer parents for having hoarded up all the property stock and resources of society, leaving millennials permanently hard up. Meanwhile, they read their Harry Potter books well past their childhoods, perhaps as a distraction from the deep misfortune they face, hit by both the global financial crisis and the pandemic disadvantaged through no fault of their own, but perhaps lacking the resilience or just the old-fashioned grit to overcome these challenges. What have millennials done to merit so much froth about them as a generation? They're a big generation, unlike the neglected Gen X who preceded them. Millennials surpassed boomers to become the largest generation in the United States, with some 72 million members. But that doesn't tell us much. Find the discourse. Who actually are they? This is not an exact science, but uh, generally speaking, in the U.S., uh, we look at millennials as a cohort that's currently between age about 25 and the oldest of them just turned 40. Former Pew Research Director Paul Taylor. So this is a, this is a generation that is now well into adulthood. When, uh, when we uh, at the Pew Research Center, where I used to work and did a lot of generational studies when we first started looking at this group, uh, 10, 15 years ago, they were teenagers just coming into adulthood. We noticed back then how different they were, not just from older adults now, but from older adults when they were that age. And we have tracked them into early adulthood and now fully into, uh, into adulthood. And uh, they remain extraordinarily different from their elders uh, across a whole range of dynamics, uh, economic, uh, social, cultural, um, demographic. For Taylor, this distinctiveness is above all resumed in the shared economic challenges millennials have faced, at least in the U.S. It is fair to say uh, in the United States, and I think this is uh, true in other advanced economies, in the last several decades, uh, economic well-being has shifted north in the life cycle. Today's boomers, my generation, when you, when you do all the, the squaring up for inflation and all the rest. So it's an apples to apples comparison. Today's older adults are much better off in terms of income and wealth than yesterday's older adults. And today's younger adults are worse off than yesterday's younger adults. Another way of expressing this in the United States, upward mobility has been an article of faith. It's almost an American birthright. Generations always do better in terms of standard of living than the generation that comes before. There's one statistic that, that, that illustrates this. If you, 50 years ago, if you looked at a 30-year-old 50 years ago, he or she, in 90% of the cases, had a higher standard of living than his or her parents had at the same stage of life. Today's 30-year-olds, today's millennials, only have a 50% chance of having a better standard of living than their parents had at the same stage of life. So it's not that we're, we're, we're entirely on a downward mobility uh, path, although about half the generation is. What it is true is it is no longer an assumption that things always go better. Now, why is this the case? Well, I'm not an economist. I don't want to over, overstate my uh, uh, credentials, but clearly something to do with the digital revolution, how profoundly that has changed the nature of work, the opportunities, when you get these kinds of enormous economic upheavals, we got it in the industrial era uh, 100, 150 years ago. It's often the case that the, the, the well-off do better and the not well-off do worse. It, ex, it, it expands economic and wealth inequality. That has happened across the board in this country and in many economies. And at least in this phase of this transition, uh, it is better. It has been better for people already um, already established, already deeper into the life cycle. One other shorter term impact, if you think back to 10, 12 years ago now, the United States had a huge uh, recession driven by housing crisis, uh, economic collapse, et cetera. This happened at a time when a lot of today's millennials were just getting out of school, just entering the workforce, and it put them on their back feet. Uh, and it probably has put a, a lot of that cohort on its back feet for the ensuing decade, decade and a half. Whatever the role technological advances may have had in generating lower living standards, we might add to it, for example, the defeat of working class movements, which we explored in part four. 
there is no doubt that decline has been felt as a shift in generational distribution. Millennials have a reputation for loving all things wellness, but a new report says millennials are poised to be broker, sicker, and die younger than previous generations. So why all this doom and gloom when it comes to my generation? The question of declining living standards and their political consequences will be returned to in a bit. But let's start, in quite a millennial vein, with millennials' feelings, with affect, and with culture. Curiously, there are echoes of the 1960s in the ways we talk about millennials, particularly in a common idea of specialness. They have been described in many ways as being quite like the baby boomers. Jenny Bristow, a sociologist at Canterbury Christ Church University, and the author of a number of books on generations, including Baby Boomers and Generational Conflict, and most recently, The Corona Generation, co-written with her teenage daughter. In the sense of having a sense of entitlement, of specialness, um, kind of coming of age, you know, during the 1990s, which I have to say, having lived through the 1990s, it, it wasn't, I didn't think it was like the 60s, but that's now it's how it's portrayed culturally, as though the 90s was like this kind of latte version of, of, of the 60s. Indeed, it's worth recalling a point made by Helen Andrews in the third part of this series on boomers. It was very obvious to me, not just because I was working on a book about baby boomers at the time, that the millennials and the Antifa activists on the street were trying to have their own 1968. And why not? We have been taught, the millennial generation, by our baby boomer history teachers that America was a terrible, horrible place until the 1960s and that the 1960s were the summit of American politics. So it's natural that we should want to replicate that kind of politics. Even on college campuses, you see so many students who think, you know, you, you haven't really had the college experience unless you've had a candlelight vigil on the campus quad for something. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> For Jenny Bristow, though, this pandering to millennials has a political function and intent. I think the millennials were really flattered by people who had a kind of a political agenda to undermine certain aspects of society, social provision for older people. So the millennials were talked about as kind of having this real sense of generational grievance, blaming their parents for everything, that sense that they were coming of age in a time where they didn't have the opportunities that the baby boomers had, right? And this argument was often made on their behalf by people who wanted to find a rationale for uh, cutting, uh, cutting pension schemes, uh, cutting funding to particular aspects of the welfare state, and who were basically trying to find a narrative for why uh, the economic situation at the end of the 20th century wasn't anything like as healthy as it was in the, <laughs> in the post-war boom. And so I'm very sort of suspicious of this idea that the millennials turned upon their parents. I don't think that that's what happened. I think it was a narrative that was put upon them um, in, in, in that respect. As much as there's a pandering to millennials, at the same time, critics chastise the generation for infantilism and for their unwillingness to grow up. You know, I think getting fucked up was, uh, was a big thing for a lot of people, uh, myself and most people I know, for a long time. Journalist Clive Martin, who wrote extensively for that classically millennial publication, Vice, on clubbing and nights out, talking about the nature of millennial hedonism. And actually what we've ended up at is probably, and I think there was this belief that like, and I wrote a piece about it once. It's like, oh, when does the party stop? Are we ever going to, um, you know, grow up? Because we, you know, we haven't got the excuses that other generations have to stop partying. Um, they, we don't have houses, we don't have children, et cetera, et cetera. And this is when you probably wrote this in my life, it was like 27 or something like that. And there was a real feeling of that, that maybe, I think that film, The Great Beauty was interesting because it was about a 65 year old man, but it, it was a very much like the narrative seemed to chime with a lot of people I know, because it was like, when does the party stop? And uh, actually that kind of looks a little bit self-indulgent now because looking around me, most people I know are starting to, you know, click back into the society's norms, like quite suddenly. Some people who were quite mental two years ago suddenly got a kid and gone like really, really straight. And actually maybe 
everyone does just become their parents in the end. Actually, for every person, like I said, who's kind of got fucked up a bit and went straight, I knew a lot of people who became casualties of that depressive hedonia. A lot of people who kind of sank into themselves with, you know, kind of downer drugs and, uh, you know, like downer music, didn't go out so much, gaming, kind of lost themselves in the internet. And I know a lot of people who... Um, didn't go for that hedonism per se but they um yeah this this slightly depressive shut-in side of things which I, I don't know how much of that really happened before does this depressive hedonia get parlayed into music so much of which seems to be about tonight and only tonight with a little sense of tomorrow it's basically saying the rest of the week's fucking shit <laughs> you know isn't it it's saying tomorrow is going to be horrible today was horrible but tonight there is a deep banality to that tune but yeah, it does probably hint at a, uh, a mindset of sorts. Josh Glenn, who has attempted a micro-categorization of generations according to their cultural products on the site High Lowbrow, believes millennials to be kinder, more sincere, but also, and perhaps in contradistinction to Clive Martin's account, particularly career-focused. I found them to be quite an admirable generation, you know, as far as perhaps being more earnest than my generation was, you know what I mean? Like we were quite a cynical generation. I think it's kind of nice to swing back a little bit to kind of sincerity and earnestness. I feel like um, these guys are better parented than the previous generations were. So I feel like there's less, there's less bullying. They're kinder. They're open to like transgender stuff and, um, you know, the idea of structural racism and, it's kind of, I mean, they're pushing this the social conversation in an amazing way. Millennials think that they should have your job um, right away because they they know how to use the internet better. So they would come to the newsroom, for example, that was a, I was a journalist, so they would come into that world and immediately want all the top jobs because they saw all these older gray hair journalists fumbling to use these new tools and techniques. And so that was caused resentment on the part of the older folks. At the same time, there seems to be a pressure on millennials to understand themselves as a generation with the kind of self-mythologizing that that involves, a practice well taught to them by their boomer elders. Clive Martin again on his generation's self-conception. I think we grew up with a lot of um, these clip shows where people were talking about things uh, in documentary form about things that only not happened that, not that long ago. So loads and loads of stuff about punk and about Acid House and about... Um, you know, various sort of TV moments and um, yeah, everything, the whole stretch of that. And those two generations, they were really given a lot of airtime in terms of talking about their own childhoods, their own experiences, the moments that meant a lot to them. And uh, that became kind of like a, um, like a cultural textbook for a lot of people in this country. I think just, it became like, there became this version of British history, which was like, okay, it starts in the 1970s with their strikes and then um, punk comes along and then Thatcher comes in and there's a minor strike and then there's football hooliganism and ecstasy saves all the football hooligans and acid house comes and there's the poll tax rights. It's like, um, it's a very, uh, it's an interesting history, but it's quite, a, it's quite a straight one, you know? And we, uh, yeah, we grew up with that mythology. Uh, and no, my generation has not been <laughs> uh, given any platform, even as the people older you know, the older millennials, people in their mid thirties, haven't really been given a voice to um, mythologize that so much. There is something very contemporary about this drive to view oneself through a self-dramatizing lens, amply aided by social media. I think that I may be the voice of my generation, or at least a voice of a generation. Actually, come to think of it, who would be the voice of the millennial generation if such a concept isn't too corny? The boomers had Albie Hoffman, Daniel Cohn-Bendit, Rudy Dutschker, and more, all associated with political movements. Is um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez the millennial voice? It's hard to think of any other millennial political leaders who would fit the bill. Maybe figures from culture, like uh, Lena Dunham or Sally Rooney, or one of the many voices from the Me Too movement. Maybe we should just leave this question here, though it's worth noting that most of the prominent candidates are women. That maybe tells us something about the social change that millennials embody. But also, the difficulty in coming up with a suitable candidate might tell us something about the fragmented media experience of today, or about the lack of political movement.
Millennials entered adulthood right as so many regressive social trends were becoming more manifest. They came of age in a period of flexibilization, atomization, individualization. Millennials get cast as representative of these phenomena, rather than what they are, fish caught in a net. Jennifer Silva is a sociologist at Indiana University and the author of Coming Up Short, Working Class Adulthood in an Age of Uncertainty, a book about working class young men and women. She explains that there's a tension between the usual picture of entitled millennials and the reality of widespread economic insecurity. When we think about the millennial generation, I think they're often stereotyped as being very entitled, kind of the image of you know, kids who have grown up with helicopter parents or who just assume they're going to get like the corner office and, you know, some fancy firm right, right when they graduate college. Um, but I do think that often covers up the vast differences within the millennial generation. Uh, the vast majority of millennials are actually growing up in a really economically insecure society where they don't necessarily have the tools and resources they need to get a job in this kind of college for all sector that demands that they have gone to college and probably re requires that they had parents who could invest a lot of money in them, like through, you know, private schools and extracurriculars and all these other connections they need to make it in life. Um, and so I think that we have to make sure we think about social class differences and also uh, race and racial and ethnic differences as well to think about what it's like to be a young for example, young person of color growing up and all of the different ways that they feel that they're discriminated against by social institutions. The impact on marriage has been particularly acute. Paul Taylor again. Behavioral patterns towards marriage and parenting have pro been profoundly different. And uh, if you look at millennials today, again, they're currently aged about 25 to 40, just Three in 10, just 30% of them are currently living in a household with a spouse and children. If you compare that, that to uh, boomers, uh, my generation, when we were the same age, 25 to 40, 50% of us were in households with a spouse and a children. If you compare it to the generation older than boomers today, 70 and 80 year olds, back when they were 25 to 40, 70% of them were in a household uh, with marriage and children. So this is a profound difference. Marriage is an institution that has been around, uh, you know, for, for millennia. And uh, the, the loss uh, of market share, to use, to use the term from economics, not sociology, uh, that marriage has suffered in the last half century has been profound. It's perhaps appropriate that Paul Taylor used a market analogy there for millennial attitudes seem to express the market-led disaggregation of society. This is happening all over the world. It's happening for a lot of different reasons. Younger adults, even into their 20s and 30s, feel like they don't have the economic foundation. Many of them still aspire to the classic you know, pattern. When you get older, you marry, you have kids. You know, that's, that's the way life is supposed to be. That was, those are, certainly been the rules of the game for most of the modern era, but it is an aspiration that a lot of millennials don't feel that they are ready to reach out for because they don't feel like they have the, the economic foundation. And it is the case that they don't. So these things sort of reinforce each other, but uh, I would say behaviorally, that is by far uh, the most important change. And then secondly, um, there is less affiliation uh, with religion. Uh, there's certainly less affiliation with political parties, other, other core institutions. You know, uh, millennials get their sense of attachment, again, th through social media, where they can create their own universe and they can place themselves at the center of it. And behaviorally, this is uh, very empowering for millennials. I think it, it creates a sense of wonder and possibility, which is always sort of nice. But I think it also enforces this wariness because, again, it doesn't take them too long to realize that some of those likes uh, aren't real. This sense of lack of trust is more than just a social media thing. It is probably fair to say that there has been a pretty negative effect uh, in terms of their, their trust, in, not just in, in institutions. They have very low levels of trust in all institutions, be they economic, uh, political, religious, etc., uh, they actually don't trust other human beings. Uh, and there, there's 50, 60 years of comparative data here 
where where you, you ask questions about you know can most people be trusted or you can't be too careful dealing with other people. We've never seen a generation less trusting than millennials, although there is now a generation younger than millennials, uh, so-called Generation Z. I'm not not fond of the name of the generation, but they are now in their teens and early 20s, and they're even less trusting than millennials. These negative trends are often contrasted with seemingly more positive ones. Perhaps the distinguishing characteristic of the millennials is their acceptance of diversity and openness, especially concerning gender and race. Paul Taylor again. What I would put front and center as the most distinctive trait of millennials that, it, that differs from older generations is their celebration uh, of diversity in, in all of its forms, whether it's racial diversity, gender diversity, sexual identity diversity, etc. You know, there are a lot of changes across these fronts. In the United States, we are en route to becoming a majority non-white country. And the millennial generation is the transitional generation to that future. Uh, about 45% of millennials are non-white by, by 2030, 2040, uh, somewhere, somewhere around there, the whole country will be majority non-white. And if you look at the generation younger than millennials, they already are. Now, for older adults uh, who grow up in a majority, uh, heavily majority white culture, this represents a change. Uh, some older adults have adapted to it, are cool with it, some are not. And again, this plays out in political and other ways. But older adults tend to see pluralism and diversity in this country as kind of a new challenge to be confronted and overcome. Millennials see it as the way the world has always been. It's the way their world has always been, and it's not a challenge to be overcome. It is a core value to be celebrated. Now, what's driving this change in the United States has been a massive modern immigration wave that started 50 years ago, 55 years ago in 1965. We opened up our borders, having closed them in much of the 20th century in reaction to earlier immigration waves. But this modern immigration wave, uh, unlike earlier immigration waves that were mostly white and European, this modern immigration wave has been mostly Hispanic and Asian. So it is, it has changed our demographic profile. And again, the millennials are absolutely a part of that change. Uh, uh, they celebrate it. They want it to continue. And they, so this plays out certainly in their social attitudes uh, uh, around race. Same time, we've had a pretty profound change in ideas around gender, not, not just the sort of women's equality, which, uh, you know, as a boomer was, a, you know, was a, has been a very important change over the last 50 or 60 years, but increasingly now an acceptance uh, of, of gender diversity, uh, sexual identity diversity, et cetera. Again, these, these are changes that older adults have trouble getting their arms around. Younger adults, it's the most natural thing in the world. So you, you see, for example, there was a, a survey that just came out in this country. I was fascinated to see because we, we've done surveys when I was at Pew of the LGBT community. Something on the order of uh, 18% of uh, sort of 18 to 25-year-olds now identified with the LGBT community. This is triple the number uh, of, uh, of the full population. So uh, there are these, these profound changes across these identity markers uh, and millennials and even more so their younger brothers and sisters are cool with it and older adults are having trouble getting their minds around it. But are these changes in attitudes and behaviors really a generational matter? Are they something particularly millennial? They could also be seen as merely a wider shift in social values. To generalize, Western societies as a whole have become more socially liberal, while also suffering from less and less trust. Less trust in institutions, but also less trust in one another. And naturally, it's younger cohorts who have been raised and come of age in this new world that most clearly express these new attitudes. Moreover, these socially liberal values, for example, celebrating diversity or connectivity, increasingly constitute the dominant ruling ideology. This would suggest that millennials aren't all that distinctive, or more accurately, that they're as distinctive as any other recent generation, merely embodying shifts in capitalist ideology that accompany capital's self-development. Why then have these values become the stuff of generational conflict, of anti-boomerism?
Millennials seemingly have a fractious relationship with the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, though the term is used much more widely today. Boomers are to be blamed for everything. The political expression of millennials as a generation might even be anti-boomerism. Millennial celebration of diversity and embrace of new technologies often expresses itself as sneering towards older attitudes. But there's a more political expression to this, a leaning to the left in the hope of free education, better jobs, adequate housing, and a greener economy. This is part of a more generalized dissatisfaction with the status quo. British journalist and millennial Owen Jones recently commented on the finding that 88% of the 700,000 jobs lost during the pandemic in the UK had been held by under-35s. For over a decade, younger people have been kicked in the teeth, and that trend continues in the pandemic. It's the onslaught against younger people which fueled the rise of the left. As much as the left's enemies wish we'd just disappear, this is the main reason we won't. Two men with a combined age of 146 are the unlikely Pied Pipers of many of today's disaffected youth. I'm trying, and you're not. Do you think sometimes it's been a danger that the most passionate pro-EU, pro-Remain on Twitter is a hashtag FBE? They've kind of dominated a lot of movements, and a lot of people on the Leave side look at them in the same Esta vergüenza no la tapa ninguna bandera, señor Rajoy. Y no es que diga yo que son ustedes corruptos. We have said that this is a manufactured crisis. This perspective is part of what has been called millennial socialism or generation left. This has been most clearly expressed in the left populist movements behind Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and new parties in Podemos and Syriza, with millennials driving forward momentum in the UK and the Democratic Socialists of America. Indeed, many DSA chapters seem populated mainly by millennials, with a couple of old boomers on board, with few Generation Xers in the mix. This would tally with the idea, expressed in this series, that Generation X is the generation of the end of history and the withdrawal from politics. Left politics, such as it is today, would then be boomer stragglers trying to rekindle their quashed hopes from the 1960s and 70s, and the new blood of millennials trying to reinvent things, albeit without much success. Uh, quick point of privilege. Quick point of personal privilege. Uh, yes. Name, chapter, pronoun. Point of personal privilege. Yes. With this left populist experiment seemingly defeated, where will so-called Generation Left go? A recent Gallup poll found that while 50% of American millennials have a favorable view of socialism, four in five had a positive view of free enterprise. What to make of these seemingly contradictory attitudes? Is their socialism only skin deep? Does this mean they're against bad crony capitalism but okay with good ethical capitalism? At any rate, this is a cohort that was formed in the post-political era, but that suddenly encountered a turbulent political scene emerging from the 2008 crash. It should be unsurprising, then, that this generation displays a contradictory and confused political consciousness. But still, the question persists. Why anti-boomerism? Jenny Bristow again. I think that question of millennial resentment is a really tricky one because where the millennials, and I'm using this in kind of broad cultural caricature here, uh, where the millennials have a point is in this argument to their parents' generation that you brought us up to believe that we were special and we could have all of these things and now we find we can't. Yeah, you know, that sense of sort of entitlement. And I think it is true to say that there you know, there, there was a particular kind of culture of child rearing um, amongst the sort of the baby boomer generation that was born out of that optimism and that sense of things getting better and, um, you know, quite indulgent of, of, of children. And 
then it is true as as you know millennials yeah the the, the cultural millennials say you know we want a prize for everything we did in school and then we graduate and we can't get a job you know there's a kind of a massive sort of reality smash so i think there's a there's that sense of it and it what's interesting is that i mean i'm thinking here about a book by um anya and who writes about the plight of the millennials and she says look at the end of the day we just want what you had you know they're not trying to set themselves against their parents you know the argument is well we just want, want what you had and it's not fair which is a bit infantile but you know that that's the kind of the core of the argument i don't really think that it's the millennials that sort of say the yeah the, the baby boomers had completely different values or 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 you know and so on I do think one thing that is interesting, though, is that the very things that were associated with the baby boomer generation in terms of radical politics, you know, feminism, you know, anti-racism, anti-militarism, and all of those things that sort of really stand out as their sort of political defining moments. I think it's very interesting how these are now kind of themselves rejected as problematic by younger generations of people, you know, so you have, for example, these these rows between so-called trans-exclusionary radical feminists, the the old guard of feminists, and, you know, a kind of younger generation who um, actually want to talk much more about non-binary people and talk about sort of gender. So, and so you have these kind of generational skirmishes where the, what, at the time was seen as the move by the baby boomers to have a world that was more tolerant and equal is now itself seen as a a, a problem. So as much as millennials might bear similarities to the boomers, where the boomers, or that generation unit that came to stand for them, thought they wanted an entirely different world to that they inherited, the millennials just want what their parents had. And ironically, the boomers, who heralded a new permissive society, are now castigated for not being liberal enough, at least according to the new orthodoxy of the day. However, any picture of millennials as a homogenous social group conceals important class differences within the generation. All millennials have come of age in a low-growth world, where asset price bubbles make attaining certain goods more difficult, and levels of trust are down across the board. But behind this generational story of unlucky millennials being cruelly denied what they were due by selfish boomers are diverging class experiences. Jennifer Silva on the obstacles faced by working class millennials. So when we think about the obstacles that working class young adults face, if you think about it through traditional markers of adulthood, like being able to move out of their parents' house, uh, being able to finish school, afford their own apartment, getting a job, and then eventually sort of settling down, maybe having a partner and having children. All of those steps take a lot of resources and knowledge in a way that they were perhaps more obvious or taken for granted for their parents' generation. Uh, One of the main problems is that a college degree is increasingly required to get a stable job with you know, stable hours and enough money to live on. And however, in order to go to college, you need a lot of, first of all, you need your parents to have invested a lot in you in terms of having a resume that's competitive enough to get into a school that might offer you financial aid. Um, but you also need a lot of knowledge in terms of which school you should go to, how much money is reasonable to pay, you know, how do, for example, you might get sucked into a predatory for-profit college where you end up paying a lot more money than you would if you went to community college, but you're not really sure how to do it. You might not have access to good guidance counselors and also connections, like, you know, legacies that would help you get into school. Um, And on top of that, even when you think about moving out, you know, do you have parents who can help you with this soaring cost of housing, either, you know, put down for some last month's rent or, I mean, as I've gotten older, I've seen many people have their parents give them their down payment for their first house because there's no way they could afford it, uh, given the soaring costs of living. These barriers also impact the life commitments one is willing to make. For working class Young people, when when we're talking about love and marriage and family, many of the people I've interviewed have kind of grown up being like the first generation whose parents 
were divorced. And so I think many of them still have a very nostalgic view of family, which would include getting married and, you know, having a house with a white picket fence and raising children in marriage and being, you know, being able to give their children a better life than they had. But many of them at the same time grew up in families where that wasn't the case. And they experienced kind of a lot of turmoil or relationships, um, maybe not lasting or having a lot of uh, trauma or pain within the family. And so they often, for me, would talk a lot about that, kind of the emotional troubles they grew up with. And this is kind of different from their parents' generation, where they probably, their parents' generation likely experienced some family turmoil or tension or conflict, or maybe alcoholism or joblessness, but probably wouldn't have talked about it so much. But the young people, young working class people I've interviewed, talk a lot about their challenges and their emotions and um, what they've coped with growing up. So that's like one aspect of it where they're kind of bringing with them maybe challenges from earlier on, which makes them a little bit more distrustful and maybe a little less likely to jump into a committed relationship because they've seen them fail in the past. There's also a sense that commitment is risky. So men will kind of be aware that they feel this pressure, like they have to be able to support a wife and children. You know, they can't just be working at Burger King or, you know, working the night shift at a, you know, service job. They feel like they won't be appealing to women. And that also makes them a little bit sad because they feel like it's not really about them. And for women that I've spoken to, they, they also, you know, they've had to fight for their independence. Um, and for them, the idea that you might kind of give everything you have to be in a relationship with someone who might not be able to support you or contribute, or maybe they're controlling, it's not worth it um, to give up their independence. In this context, the wider question of social trust rears its head. What I find is sort of an inward turn where they're scared to rely on other people. They don't believe that institutions are working for them. Many of them believe that most institutions, whether it's education or politics, exist only for profit um, to you know, benefit corporations and that they can't trust anyone and they really have to take care of themselves. And what that means is that they're not really, you know, participating in kind of forms of collective action or even really voting. Um, and that they really believe that, you know, they don't, they almost have a sense of pride. Like I have to take care of myself. And if I don't, then, you know, if I rely on anyone else, then I'm only going to be more hurt or betrayed. But that mistrust isn't reflected as deeply in middle-class millennials. I think among middle-class youth, it's different because they do believe that institutions are working for them and will be responsive to their needs. And I've seen them hang their identity much more on, you know, political organizing, getting much more involved um, in social justice movements, perhaps, and, um, you know, basically believing that they can make a difference. A hyper-competitive world is not something the middle class can escape, but they do have greater means of staying ahead. Competition need not be fatal. Middle-class parents are basically coaches for their for their children from an early age. So, for example, they're intervening very early on in the school setting to make sure that their children are getting the support they need. They're I've interviewed middle-class parents who pay for their children to go to Cambodia to volunteer in a dental clinic, or they'll ask a neighbor to give their child a free internship in a chemistry lab that allow them to write this great essay to get into school. Um, at the same time, I've seen middle-class parents starting college savings, you know, really early, but also helping their children understand what college investments might be worth it. For example, encouraging them to take a scholarship to a public school, but then paying for graduate school later. Um, and so really kind of their parents have invested in so many experiences and connections for them that that transition to adulthood is a little bit easier because they have so much scaffolding. On top of that, I've also seen middle and upper class parents being able to use their resources to help young adults in case they start floundering. So for example, if a working class kid maybe 
um, starts experimenting with drugs or gets into a bad relationship or gets accidentally pregnant, they're usually on their own versus for the middle-class parents, uh, middle-class families are often, you know, the first to get their children psychological counseling or making sure they have access to birth control. All of these investments that help them keep going, even when, you know, we think something might happen. For example, if their kid has a learning disability, getting tutors and making sure they have accommodations, um, that kind of thing. Ultimately, it's hard to separate class and generation in the experience of millennials. It's almost like the way that class is experienced because of the generation that matters. So I would say within this current generation, how maybe the things that the foundational pieces of what it is to be a millennial might be that you grow up in a uh, economy that demands college with a very insecure, risky service sector. We see a retreat of the social safety net. Uh, we see much more uncertainty and instability around family and gender um, and a growing distrust of major institutions uh, such as religion or politics. Or, But I do think that how that ends up being experienced is so shaped by class that you can't really separate them because in a way middle-class people are able to maintain their class advantage because they're able to navigate all of these generational changes in a way that working class people are not. In some, is generation war today, such as it is, fought over resources or over values? We've seen at the beginning of this series that generational cleavages are historically given life by a different conception of the world held by new cohorts. But millennial values don't seem to herald that much of a rupture. The seeds were already there in the new left of the 1960s. And by now, these values are becoming constituent elements of the ruling ideology. As for conflict over resources, there's clearly a distributional inequality between young and old today that is more stark than in the past. But as noted earlier, millennials seem only to be fighting for what their parents once had. This fact would suggest that there isn't that much to the idea that this struggle is a generational one. And as class divides millennials just as it does boomers, the issue at hand appears to be a social one, which is only mystified by treating it as a generational question. We are at the same point today in looking at the millennials that we would be if we were in 1985 looking at the boomers. An older boomer, born in 1945, would have been 23 at the time of the global uprising of 1968 and would have been in their late 20s and early 30s throughout the 1970s. So, by 1985, we would have been able to make some strong claims about the nature of the boomers and their politics. So let's attempt the same today. This older millennial, born in 1980, might have participated in the anti-globalization protests at 19, and would have been 21 when the War on Terror began. They may have opposed the invasion of Iraq, and then got shafted by the global financial crisis. Maybe they would have been a leading voice at Occupy when they were 31. At the start of this series, we laid out four hypotheses. One of which was that generations can be defined by more than their formative experiences. They can be defined by their political agency. We'll let the millennial record speak for itself. Looking to the future, we noted in part three that Bill Clinton was the archetypal boomer politician and world leader. Millennials haven't reached that stage yet, especially as so much Western politics looks like a gerontocracy today. Who will be the archetypal millennial politician? Uh, Pete Buttigieg? As to those distributional questions, we know right now that the 72 million American millennials control just 4.6% of US wealth. Millennials as a whole might be worse off, but the usual intergenerational transfer of wealth will soon see a small proportion of millennials inherit a lot of that. That should surely put pay to questions about generational distribution of wealth. How will we look back on millennials in the future? Will their goody-two-shoes attitudes mean they will always be a conservative generation? Are the middle-class fractions of the generation going to be excluded from processes of asset accumulation that define the experiences of their parents, maintaining their generation-left radicalism? 
One way in which generations are created is through the shared appreciation of certain cultural or aesthetic products which can travel across geographical or cultural boundaries. The shared music of the 1960s seems to have had that effect back then. Today there's talk once again of so-called global generations, and events like the worldwide spread of Black Lives Matter's protests seems to suggest this is happening again. But at the same time, media is incredibly fragmented nowadays, with little sense of a mainstream anymore. The case for the emergence of global generations is still unresolved. What is the role of the internet in the generational question? Jenny Bristow again. Internet is both more and less significant than is often presumed. So in terms of being less significant, one of the things about the the, the internet is that it gives a much more uh, globalizing perspective. Yeah, it breaks down uh, boundaries in that way. And this argument was actually made really uh, quite perceptively by um, June Evans and, and Brian Turner's leading scholars on generations, actually about the baby boomers. And, and they wrote that yeah, it was the baby boomer that was the first global generation, because that's when you had TV, you had a lot of events happening all at the same time. And so that um, ability to sort of see each other as a generation, I think goes back um, quite some time. And it's not really new with the internet. I think what is new about the uh, internet and particularly social media, I think it has more to do with politics than it does with generations, that social media has kind of allowed, well, on the one hand, it's kind of facilitated what we might call the cultural blending that we've seen with other technologies. But I mean, I think it's, it's really facilitated that. So that sort of specific sense of geographical space that people live in, it doesn't really feature so much. And it means that you can have protests that take place about something that happens with America just being exported everywhere else, even though the context is actually kind of quite different. So I think that's sort of very interesting. And I think um, also it's facilitated the creation of these echo chambers and identity politics, which... Again, I don't think that's to do with generations as such, but I think it really does sort of feed that sense of people looking to construct their rhetorical identity against something or somebody else and to get validation from people who think the same ways that they do and to perform their identity in this way. And and, and the extent to which that side of things has broken down kind of traditional boundaries between, say, the uh, public space and private space, I think does actually mean that the generations that have come of age being very comfortable with social media, I think they they do sort of inhabit a slightly different reality because of that sense of there being no, no real kind of physical or geographical boundaries. Might what we have come to see as generational conflict between millennials and boomers actually just be an internet mediated identity? So rather than millennials truly being a generation apart, with a truly distinctive worldview and political ambitions, is what we're seeing maybe little more than the performance of a millennial identity, one that has been constructed online as quote-unquote anti-boomer. Boomers then are cast as complacent social conservatives, something that is in diametric opposition to what the 60s rebels saw themselves as. To really invert the picture, we might even consider that the boomers were really the rebellious social liberals and radicals, and that millennials are in fact complacent conservatives. Even if that's going too far, these questions should serve to complicate the facile generational narrative with which we're often served. And anyway, according to what we've explored in part one of this series, generations are shaped by certain traumatic events that don't come around that often. There is no automatic sequence of generations distinct from one another and conscious of themselves. Moreover, millennials are internally split by their experience of the 2008 crisis. The older millennial cohorts, sometimes known as geriatric millennials or silverback millennials, who were born between 1980 and 1985, will have entered the job market sometime between 1998 and 2007, before the crisis. How is their experience the same as that of a younger millennial, say one born in 1995, who was 13 when the crisis hit? That younger millennial will have spent most of their adolescence with social media, rather than encountering it in adulthood, as older millennials did.
For all that we may seek to junk or debunk a lot of the froth about millennials, this series has tried to establish that there is nevertheless something to the generational lens. Sometimes a generational consciousness is well-founded, and there is a certain integrity to generational cleavages. So what about the youngest generation, the Zoomers born mostly to Gen Xers from the mid-1990s until today? There's obviously little to say just yet, with its older members only in their early 20s. For some, Gen Z is already far more aware, more politically conscious, or woke, than their predecessors. Journalist Clive Martin again. I think one of the, the main things about Zoomers, I think you see a real kind of consciousness politically. Um, I think back to when I was 18 and uh, there was a little bit of like leftover leftism from like the Stop the War March in the UK and things like that. But it was quite, it was quite niche to be into left-wing politics and especially identity politics then. It was, uh, it was not particularly fashionable. It, it involved going to uh, a lot of sort of uh, church halls and sort of meeting with with sort of lefty boomers and stuff like that ironically but this generation is just so switched on to all that kind of stuff i mean they're quite academic in a way um they, they really understand uh and critique these assumed roles we have and all that kind of stuff so they're obviously like they're super aware about you know race and gender and sexuality and uh, politics and you know all sorts of systemic issues you know to be honest when I went to university it was a big party <laughs> um, and uh, you know I, I went to university in central London it wasn't that bad but the people I know who are uh, you know intelligent people who are into this kind of stuff now I think they just they weren't that involved in that stuff it was it was much more self-centered we were at that age whatever we may think about the content of the views Gen Z supposedly holds it's understandable that a generation coming of age in a more politically turbulent time should feel more politically conscious. This stands in contrast to millennials coming of age after the end of history, or Gen Z who saw the sunset of politics. At present, it's not possible to say how and if Zoomers' attitudes may coalesce into political projects. But being raised with social media and immediately globally connected to the Americanized public sphere that it is, members of Gen Z may share some commonality with one another, especially because of the pandemic. What will the long-term effect of this be? Are they a corona generation? Jenny Bristow. Again, there's a tension here about what kind of label is imposed upon them and what kind of generation they'll become. People have been trying to label Generation Z for ages. Yeah, that, part of the reason they're called Generation Z is because no one's come up with a label yet, you know, because we had Gen X and then there was Gen Y, which then became the millennials. So now we have Gen Z and it's like, oh my God, it's at the end of the alphabet. You know, there was always a sense that things were going to go badly for the Gen Z kids. And lots of attempts have been made to sort of say what is distinct about them, whether it's social media or Zoom or, or whatever. Now... I don't really think that any of those things is particularly worthy of consideration. However, I uh, wrote a book in 2020, the spring and summer of 2020 with my teenage daughter, called The Corona Generation, Coming of Age in a Crisis, which was about the experience of the pandemic on young people coming into adulthood at that time, because I had this very powerful sense that actually... I think when we're looking at something that really does mean something of significance in the formation of generational consciousness, this whole past year of the pandemic and also the response to it, you know, in terms of lockdown, you know, does potentially have the the ability to provoke that distinction of the, you know, the world before and the world now. You know, it is going to affect young people. So it's not a, a prophecy. And I'm trying to tread quite a fine line here between on the one hand saying that I, I actually think that there will be something significant about the pandemic for the consciousness of Generation Z and this may well provoke the kind of generational conflict or generation gaps that I've spent the past 10 years saying didn't exist. I think this moment might be one of those. On the other hand, um, I'm very keen to resist the, um, the determinism that goes alongside generational labelling. And I think this narrative that you're seeing building more and more now about the COVID generation or Gen C or whatever, which just is a really kind of lazy way 
of saying anyone who was born in this time or who was a kid in this time or came at age at this time, their entire future is going to be determined by the experience of the pandemic, I think really doesn't work, right? Because young people, as they grow up, they are making their future. They're not just sort of repositories for a kind of a horrible moment that happened at a certain point in their lives. So I think it has to be handled with caution. Some have argued that globalized and globalizing mass media and internet communication technologies are triggering mechanisms for generational self-consciousness, especially when they mediate traumatic events, such as the pandemic. But there's also an argument that ever more complex media ecosystems aren't actually that effective in conveying trauma. Everything becomes hyper-real, in which media representations become indistinguishable from reality. If life is increasingly experienced this way, do traumatic events still have the same effect and the capacity to spur on generational consciousness? So after all that, where are we with generations as a concept? Ultimately, the idea seems more applicable when talking about distinct social groupings rather than society at large. We can talk about generations of rock musicians or artists, and things map quite neatly, where, for example, the punks react against the overblown ambitions of prog rock, opting for a pared-down, direct and punchy aesthetic instead, or the concept of generations can be usefully applied to political generations. Consider the left, where a generation mostly born after the Second World War reacted against the so-called old left creating a new left that chose to emphasize alienation more than it did exploitation. But when applied to society as a whole, when we claim that millennials are such and such, for example, the concept loses cogency. Instead, what happens is that a certain generation unit, a specific section of a cohort, comes to stand in for a generation as a whole. The image of millennials in cafes on laptops, of digital nomads unable to afford a house or start a family, or choosing not to, is what has come to stand in for all those born from 1980 to 1995. But the reality is that this image is specifically that of the urban liberal middle class, a part of society that is culturally hegemonic anyway. And so the younger cohort of that relatively well-off part of society comes to represent the millennial generation as a whole. It was perhaps always thus, as we found throughout this series. And yet, when a new cohort emerges and forcibly breaks with the old, taking the future of society into its own hands. That is, it refuses to be the passive object of social forces and decides to be an active agent, then the concept of generation takes on a new vibrancy, as it did after the French Revolution, the 1848 revolutions, or even indeed the generation of 68, whatever its later disappointments. Modernity is indelibly associated with youth, the new, the future. The insistence on a purely generational lens, though, so often presents a distorted view of society and politics. As we've found over the course of this series, whether it be the striking generational consciousness of the World War I generation, or later on of the baby boomers, or today's millennial-led generation war, the appeal to generational divides has repeatedly served as a useful mechanism to avoid or evade the reality of class and class politics. Thank you for listening to OK Boonger, The Problem of Generations. This series is produced by Philip Cunliffe, George Hoare, and Alex Hochili. Original music is by Johnny Mundy. This episode's guests have been, in order of appearance, Paul Taylor, Jenny Bristow, Helen Andrews, Clive Martin, Josh Glenn, and Jennifer Silva. And the narrator is myself, Alex Hochili. That's it for this series, but for access to everything Alpha Bunga Bunga, including bonus content, original subscriber-only episodes, and our monthly reading clubs, join us at patreon.com slash bungacast. We hope to see you there. Bunga.